You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Christian Humanist. The girls are complicated. Feminist Podcast, episode 155, super special crossover episode uh, that we do around Halloween every year. And I'm Katie Grubbs, and with me today are Sarah Thomas of the CFP and Michael Farmer of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Hi, guys. Hello. Hey, how's it going? Great. And today we're going to be talking about um, Edgar Allan Poe's story, Berenice. Um, and all the uh, a lot of shows on the network are doing uh, Poe stories. Poe is our big theme this year for crossover. Um, so before we get started, we're going to introduce ourselves just to kind of, um, especially because this is a crossover episode, so not all of us are always on CFP. Um, and Sarah, why don't you go first? All right. I'm Sarah Thomas. I uh, <clears throat> have a Ph.D. in English literature from Florida State University. <clears throat> I am currently living in the metropolitan Atlanta area with my husband and our two dogs um and i'm currently writing a book i have a first draft due to the uh publishing house at the end of this week so that is what i will be working on over the next several nights um and i i was as i was thinking about this episode and thinking about poe i was trying to remember when i first became familiar with edgar Allan poe and i'm pretty sure i have my dad to credit with that um, I remember him talking to me about it, and I remember him uh, quoting The Raven to me when I was younger, or actually misquoting The Raven. Um, he likes to fracture famous poetry, and so his version of the opening lines of The Raven are, Once upon a midnight cautious, while I pondered weak and nauseous. Um, <laughs> and it goes on from there uh, and takes a turn that's probably not appropriate for the CFP, but yes, those two lines. Um and then he also told me a, a semi-apocryphal story, perhaps, uh, about my grandmother and also the raven. So um, my grandmother's family grew up in central Virginia and actually grew up in Charlottesville. And if you ever go to Edgar Allan Poe's room on the range at uh, the University of Virginia, there is a um, Right. Uh, the room is set aside. It's sort of glassed off. But if you look at it now, it's set up the way it would have been when Poe was a student. And among the various artifacts in the room are, for example, a pallid bust of Pallas and a taxidermied raven. Well, apparently one night in high school, um, she was out with some of her friends and they uh, were looking for something to do. And after carousing for a little while, they thought that you know what, that raven deserved a proper burial. And so they allegedly broke into Poe's room, stole the taxidermied raven, and um, put him in a shoebox and buried him. That's amazing. So, so, 
So I also grew up hearing that story. My first experience with the Poe short stories themselves was actually a book I picked up at one of the scholastic book fairs when I was a child. Um, it's called Edgar Allan Poe, Eight Tales of Terror. And uh, Berenice or Berenice um, was not one of those eight stories, but it has been sitting on my shelf since I was in elementary school. And so I'm very excited to take a look at this story, which was not one that I had encountered before signing up for this episode and to hear y'all's thoughts about it. We should, um, we should mention the pronunciation issue. You've said Berenice. Um, yes. Sarah and, said and I Berenice. I have always said Berenice. Um, okay. Um, and I'm trying to remember. I know that I took uh, I took a class on Poe at UGA with Doug Anderson, and he I know either says Berenice or Berenice. Um, okay. But I don't remember which one it is. That that long I seems wrong to me. It doesn't seem like it should be pronounced that way. So I'm going to say Berenice. We can pronounce it however you want. Well, and probably yeah. either of those two would be right. It's one of the great sorrows in my life that I never took that Poe class with Doug Anderson because I love Poe. Oh, <laughs> and I do? love I, Doug Anderson. Famously, so I, I hate Poe. But I, I do love Doug Anderson. And that's the only, um, it's the only class I ever took with him. Um, and and the man did his best. He's certainly an engaging teacher, but reading through all of Poe's short fiction, just it, it has a truly deadening effect after a while because it's it's you know there's there's two or three sorts of stories, and all the horror stories use a very similar effect, and all the humor stories are so atrocious that no human being should ever have to read them. So I um it it, it had been probably 10 years since I read um, Berenice and going back I, I thought okay this is alright when I don't have to read it in concert with 15 other Poe horror stories that use similar effects that makes perfect sense I never thought about that but I can imagine I mean the whole point is the single effect right but if you keep getting the same single effect over and over and over you're going to get desensitized well, that to kind it of, that kind of overwrought Vincent Price-esque uh, hysteria, monomania. It, it, lots of authors have one thing they do, and and to be fair, I mean Poe has other tricks, but in the horror stories, it's really just that one. It's it's an atmospheric trick, and then this kind of, um, oh, what's the what's the term from Fall of the House of Usher? The um, it's it's like a a, a horrible sensitivity, and you, you definitely get that here in Berenice. Well, Michael, do you want to quickly introduce yourself and then um, give any more background about your experience with Poe? Yeah, so I, um, I until this year, was on the Christian Humanist podcast, which the show hasn't actually aired an episode, in part because both I and David have taken jobs teaching at high schools and just... I don't know what David's schedule looks like. My schedule, um, I, I teach all day, which is fine. I could still record, except that the times I'm not teaching... I'm, frantically writing lectures for the western civ classes i have to teach having never taught them before so i'm um i'm much too busy to have a weekly podcast unfortunately um i know i know some of our listeners have written in and wondered when we're coming back and the answer is sometime i guess uh, i'm not exactly sure when that is and i can't think that far ahead yet uh but i i we don't have any plans to end the show we're just like not able to do it right now i i think maybe david and nathan are going to go monthly at some point. And I think they had been all set up to do it. And then Nathan's school went back online because of COVID. And, and then he lost all energy and will to do it. So it's just been, we've, we've all been very, uh, very tired and busy. And uh, it's, it's good to be back on a podcast. I've been, still been doing, um, before they were live, the, the show where Josh and I watch Disney movies. But uh, I haven't done a, uh, a text-based 
show since last May or whenever the last CHP was. Well, we're glad to have you, and I, particularly because you do have such a background with Poe. I, I think that's going to be a real asset in this episode. Um, I'm Katie Grubbs, and I have a PhD in English Lit from the University of Georgia. And I uh, spend most of my time um, caring for the four children that I have with David Grubbs of the aforementioned Christian Humanist Podcast. We have um, three that are attending elementary school, and then I have a three-year-old. And um, the rest of my time is spent being an adjunct professor for Houston Baptist University, fully online, um, which is particularly convenient because we moved to Alabama this summer. So we had a big relocation um, for David to, to teach at a high school here. So um, I enjoy the literary stuff because with the online teaching, it's designed to be the same experience for our students every time. I teach the class, which means that there's not room for variation. So I couldn't go into my composition lit class and go, no, I'll throw in a post story this, you know, this time um, to get to talk about some of this stuff. It because it's not that can't change it. <laughs> so it's always fun to do a literary podcast episode because then it gives me a chance to kind of delve into some of that stuff. Um, OK, so we always kind of start with a knowing section, just given some background about the story or whatever it is that we're talking about. But actually, before we talk about this particular story, um, I wanted Michael to just give us a little a little history of the, the crossover as a concept on the network, because we do this every year. But I always like to remind everyone why we're crossing over. What's the point of all this, you know, and 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 how how does it work? So can you do that real fast, Michael? Just give us a little bit of a rundown on the crossover. Sure. Yeah. So um, it started not with a Halloween crossover, but with a Christmas crossover when I think it was Victoria's idea to have ever, all the shows on the network talk about the show Firefly. And we all just kind of switched around and, and did that. I think it was uh, I don't remember. I, I was on a, some an episode of something, Katie, with you and David and Victoria. Um, I think but, that was CFP. I forgot that that was at Christmas time. Yeah, it was but right I around Christmas. David came on CFP. And then, then we decided it made more sense to do it at Halloween and to have a kind of different theme every year. And Poe has been one. So we vote on it. There's a representative from each show that is, is part of this committee that votes on stuff like this. And uh, Poe has been in the vote every year. Uh, and for whatever reason, this is the first year he actually got chosen, um, maybe because we ran out of other things that uh, that were, were more appealing to us than Poe, or maybe because we felt like his time was due, but uh, that that's how. Um, so, uh, there's just members from each show, one member from each show votes, and uh, whoever gets the most votes wins. So th there were a number of other things that were up uh, this, this year that I assume eventually we'll get uh, Halloween crossovers on if we continue to do it. I always love the experience, too, because it gives me a chance to experience a different format. You know, yeah, it is, that, that is that there's something to that because your your format is um, much different than Christian humanist and like sectarian review barely has a format. And so it, it's 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 very um, it's very different to record on different shows and, and can be uh, kind of energizing because of that. Absolutely. Um, I think I think it was was it Don Sectarian review that it was that, that Danny Danny had me and you and we were talking about the Wolfman. Wolf yeah, that was in the Universal Horror, uh, the Universal Monster movies uh, year. I love that one. You and uh, I are often on these together. Um, I know, which it's is so which is fun. cool. 
I don't know why. Well, and the one year I think that you and I weren't on together was the Hitchcock year, and that year I think I was on City of Man because Coyle was there. And I think you hosted. I think you hosted your episode because you did the Lady Vanishes. Oh, that's I think, right. I think you were in charge of CFP that year. And maybe then Coyle came on CFP, and I feel like maybe Jay was the third person, but I can't remember who the third person was. It might have been. Um, uh, that that year I was the... on – what was I on? Gosh. Uh, I was on City of City of Man. Anyway, our, our t- listeners can go back and listen to all, to all those. Yeah. It's every year the week of Halloween. And they're 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 really cool um, listeners, especially if you've only listened to CFP and you know you would like to hear some other voices, but you don't necessarily want to strap in to listen to lots of episodes of all these other podcasts. It could be a great way to kind of mix it up a little bit and still hear some CFP people, but also you know um, tread into some of the waters of some of the other people on the network. Another great one for that is uh, Core Curriculum. Yeah, which, which awesome. we have another season. I I need I need to. We're missing a few episodes, and I need to edit a few episodes, and then we need to get that going because I I think there's there's episodes that we recorded in like January 2021 that are going to sound very out of date. In, in fact, I think in one episode I give my age as 38, and probably by the time it airs I'm going to be 40. So that'll be <laughs> that that'll show you how underwater I have felt the last uh, the last six months. I, I did want to take just a second and say what the other episodes were this year, uh, just oh, so yeah. if anybody's interested. So City of Man ran one on the Telltale Heart on Monday with Jordan Poss, David Grubbs, and Matthew Block, who was Nathan's replacement last year on uh, CHP. Uh, the flagship show did the first episode of this year with um, Nathan, my wife Victoria, and Dan Dawson from Book of Nature. That was on Tuesday. They did a Descent into the Maelstrom. Uh, Wednesday was supposed to be a Book of Nature episode, their yearly, their yearly episode. Oh, I, I, my understanding is they're coming back soon. But anyway, they, for whatever reason, were not able to record. I think, um, I think there was an emergency in Todd Pedler's family. Um, I, everybody's fine, but he couldn't record, so I'm not sure anything went up for that. But Thursday was Sectarian Review. They did Mask of the Red Death with Danny, Melissa Stowe, Stow, and Carter Stepper. And then here we are to talk about Berenice, Berenice, Berenice. Berenice. <laughs> I will. That I was thinking earlier. It totally depends on which language this name is supposed to be coming from, of how you should pronounce it. Because if you were going in Spanish, it'd be something more like Berenice. Um, but you know, who knows? Um, okay. So then, um, I want to talk for just a minute about the publication history of this story, and then Sarah's going to give us a plot summary. So, um, this story was—it's an earlier story, um, published in. In the first few years that he had started to publish stories, it was published, you know, a pretty long time before some of the ones that he's known best for, things like Telltale Heart, Black Cat, Goldbug, things like that, um, published uh, way before the detective ones. So um, first publishing was 1835 in a magazine, The Southern Literary Messenger, which one something I read called, quote, relatively genteel. Um, and uh <laughs> That was probably true because the so lots of readers were shocked by the story, by the violent kind of ending, and complained to the publisher, who was a guy Thomas W. White, um, and so that actually the complaints were enough that it ended up leading to an edited version of the story, which was published in 1840, um, and that had four paragraphs that were removed, um, and the four paragraphs that were taken out because you can't I mean you can't take out the kind of horrific ending because it literally tells you what happens in the end. But the, the, interestingly, the paragraphs that were removed were the paragraphs from the original version where he goes to 
see her after she's died, but before she's buried. And he thinks that he sees her moving, like her fingers like moving, and he thinks he sees her smile. That was what was taken out. Because, um, I mean, I, don't know, I guess they felt like it was more horrifying if she was clearly still alive before she was buried. Um, and interestingly, when I was when I was reading the text, I because our all of our books are still in boxes uh, from our move because we don't have enough bookshelves yet. So my printed out post stories, I couldn't get at them. So I read it online. I read it on the website of the Edgar Allan Poe Society of Baltimore, um, and they had the full text of the original printing. But one of the other versions that popped up, maybe the second Google result was a different website that just has different literary sources on it. But it was um, it was a version from 1903. That was the expurgated version. The four paragraphs are missing in the ver- this other version that I found online. So those those kind of you know san- the sanitized version is still around, um, and people might read it and not even know that they're not getting the full story right if they don't know to look for the original version. I thought that was kind of interesting, um, but Poe really disagreed with that. Even though he he allowed the edited version to go forth, he really didn't like doing it. Um, he uh, wrote to the publisher basically saying what should matter is circulation. Lots of magazines publish stories like this. Lots of people read them. Um, if readers like, if, if readers like it and are buying it, then it should be published. And I did, I, they, I found a quote that he said, quote, I allow that it approaches the very verge of bad taste, but I will not sin quite so egregiously again, he said. <laughs> And then published a whole bunch more stories. Yeah. But um, so it's kind of interesting uh, that, you know, he 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 wasn't I was talking to David about it earlier today and he said, yeah, you know, it's not like he started out more staid and conservative and then ramped it up. You know, this was what he was coming out with, you know, in his second year of, of getting published. Well, and, um, and you got to remember with the horror fiction in particular for Poe, he is he is writing this to make money. Like this is not him trying to be a great artist. He is he is writing stuff that will sell and then and now controversy sells. Right. So um, absolutely. There, there is a kind of provocateur quality to Berenice. Well, so, you know, I've talked about the controversy. I've talked about the violence. So Sarah's going to give us a quick plot. I mean, it's a short story, listeners. You know, you could you could turn up, you could pause this, read it and be back in 15 minutes. But in case you don't want to do that, Sarah's going to give us a quick summary of the short story. All right. So this uh, so this short story uh, revolves around, I think, one of the few protagonists in post stories who's actually named um, our narrators uh, and I guess protagonist name is a. Uh, Aegeus, am I pronouncing that correctly? Um, or, who, or Aegeus, Aegeus, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure which would be. Yeah, I don't know. It's right. like the, it's, it's like her name too. Yeah, we can't pronounce any names. Yeah, <laughs> so Aegeus or Aegeus, um, who is a young man uh, growing up in a large, gloomy family manse, um, alongside his cousin uh, Berenice. Uh, he suffers from an obsessive disorder of some sorts, which manifests itself primarily in monomania that uh, causes him to fixate on objects. Um, His cousin um, also is suffering from illness, um, unspecified, but involves periods of catalepsy um, as one of the primary symptoms. He refers to these as a trance, um, 
And so the first part of the story uh, briefly describes uh, Aegeus's uh, childhood growing up in uh, primarily in a library surrounded by books, surrounded by um, the world of ideas um, or the world of the imagination, as opposed to the world that is out of doors where Berenice uh, spends much of her time. Um, one afternoon, uh, Aegeus sees Berenice uh, while he's sitting in the library. Um, she comes in and smiles at him. And uh, when she does this, he begins to focus on her teeth. Uh, and this obsession uh, becomes uh, the focus of a protracted episode of this monomania. And for days, he drifts in and out of awareness of his surroundings because he's constantly thinking about her teeth. Um, he thinks about holding them, uh, examining them from all angles. Um, by this point, they have also uh, it won't. I forgot to mention uh, at this point they had been um, betrothed uh, around the time that this episode happens. Uh, and then at some point a servant comes in and uh, tells him that Berenice has died and is going to be buried. Um, and he goes, this is the uh, part that you were talking about, Katie, um, that he goes to visit her uh, while she's lying in her coffin that's set up on the bed. And he looks at her, uh, believes that he sees that the strap that had been tied around her jaw to hold her jaw shut has been broken and that she seems to be smiling and a hand might or might not be moving. Um, and all he can think, all he can continue to think about, even as he's running away, are these teeth. Um, the next thing that he becomes aware of um, is that there is a uh, there is a lamp in a room and a small box that is sitting in front of him that he recognizes as having belonged to or as belonging to a family physician. Um, around the time that he notices this box, um, a servant enters and tells him that um, his uh, that Berenice's grave has been violated and that a shrouded and disfigured body was found seemingly still alive. Um, Aegeus himself finds that his clothes are covered in mud and in blood and that there are fingernail scratches on uh, fingernail imprints on his hand, at which point he opens the box to find that it contains dental instruments and um, 32 small white and ivory looking substances, quoting from the story, which are in fact Berenice's teeth. Um, so let's see. Did I forget any of the other uh, any of the other key points? I don't think here? so. No. Um, so yes, there. Um, uh, as the box falls open, um, everything is sort of scattered around the floor, and that's the note on which the story ends. Thank you so much. Um, that's a great a great encapsulation. Despite um, like here because it's he's so verbose and the way that he talks about things is so over the top at times. Like it's actually to me creepier listening to you describe the story than it was actually, than it is reading it. <laughs> it's a slog to read Poe. It's so, <laughs> it's so funny that he gets, he's every high schooler's favorite author. Cause he's not an easy read. It's a, it's a, it's very overwrought flowery language. It is. I think they like it cause they usually get assigned the short stories and they're easy. They're quick to read. 
Like, you know, a lot of my students will be like, oh, my favorite story is to tell a tall heart. <laughs> I'm thinking, okay, or is that maybe only the one, the it, only one? It's you a three-page story that you would have, you know, to be fair, that is a pretty good story. Yeah, it's, I think it's a better one than this one. They also love to say that their favorite play is Romeo and Juliet, and I know it's only because that was the only Shakespeare play they've ever read. Um, <laughs> or that their favorite novel is The Great Gatsby. That's the other one. Um, well, let's talk through some stuff, and um, we're going to kind of – we can kind of work through, and we'll, we'll see where this goes. If we, if we get into some interesting places, I may not go through all these questions, but I just wanted to kind of um, – to get started. So to begin at the beginning – um, this guy, Aegeus, says he was literally born in the library. He says this is the room where his mother died, and this is where he was born, um, is in the same room with all the books. And he, he describes spending his whole life in an intense relationship with books. Um, so what do you what do you guys think or do you think Poe's trying to say anything about the idea of kind of closeting yourself away with solely with intellectual pursuits rather than kind of living out in the world because he kind of contrasts himself with his cousin who he says, you know, she's so free, she's out there, she's living life. So what do you guys think Post trying to say about, about that? So there's a weird, um, a tension. Maybe there's a weird confluence in this story between a sort of rationalism and a sort of idealism and a sort of materialism right so you have this guy who's who's born in the library he's he's always thinking but at the same time he um he's he's obsessed with physical items and he is projecting this world of meaning onto the physical items so it's very difficult to even tell if Aegeus is uh if you could call him an idealist or a materialist or a rationalist, but it all does kind of center around the reading he does, the reading he is in some ways, because he is born in that library. His mother dies in the library, as you say. And I think, um, I, 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 I kind of think it's a mistake to say what is Poe trying to say with this, because I think mostly what he does is atmospheric, but, uh, that is certainly a, that is certainly an image that recurs throughout this story is, the the mind that he lives in and yet he's so obsessed with the body that's a great point that hadn't actually occurred to me when i think it i mean you see this in 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 various other stories too the idea of of a young person and i mean it's always a man with Poe who who has lived this kind of shut away life you know um and uh the other thing that's kind of strange is that he keeps kind of darkly hinting that these books are somehow dangerous. Um, and I want to, let me, let me pull it up. Cause I want to, okay. So um, he says that um, in the very peculiar nature of the library's contents, um, that there's evidence for his family being kind of, he says a race of visionaries. Um, the recollections of my earliest years are connected with that chamber and with its volumes of which latter I will say no more. Like, and I mean, maybe I'm taking that too far, but he seems to have this kind of, he, he talks about the, the books being peculiar and then he says, oh, but I'm not going to talk about it. And so, and he's this very peculiar person. It, it makes me think of, you know, are these forbidden books? Are they, you know, are they books full of, like esoteric knowledge or is it more, you know, I, I don't know. Did, did you guys get that feeling or is that just me trying to ascribe too much meaning to, 
something Poe was probably just doing to make it seem creepier. Well, but but what's weird about that, Katie, is these forbidden books are standards of Christian theology. He's reading Augustine's City of God and Tertullian. Those yeah, are his, that's true. The, I forgot. So, so, yeah. so, so it, it's... It's very strange that he would talk about them as forbidden when those are those are books that anyone with a passing interest in early Christian theology are going to at least dip into. It, it, like lots and lots of people have read those without making them crazy enough to pull out their cousin's teeth. <laughs> well, and one of the other things, Michael, that I thought was really fascinating about those books in particular is that in that is that that paragraph in the story, at least in the edition that I'm taking a look at. Um, begins with the claim that my books at this epic, if they did not actually serve to irritate the disorder, namely his monomania, partook, it will be perceived largely in their imaginative and inconsequential nature of the characteristic qualities of the disorder itself. So he says that the books, you know, he says that he's not going to mention the books, except then later he does identify three of them um, as Michael articulated for us and then says that, you know, if they didn't irritate the disorder, they partook in their imaginative and inconsequential nature of the characteristic qualities of the disorder itself. So he seems to be trying to also establish some sort of connection between these Christian texts and the symptoms, at the very least, of his uh, of his own self-described disorder. And that was something that I found particularly perplexing for me. Um, I, I struggled to, to figure out what to do with that one. Um, but I kept coming back to it as I was, as I was trying to, you know, to understand this story prior to our recording. And I don't know what he's doing with Augustine, but with Tertullian, at least the, the sentence he quotes is he quotes it in Latin, but it's the famous, I believe because it is absurd or, or whatever it is. I say it's famous, yeah. but I can't quote it right. Yeah, it's um, it's that uh, it's credible because it is unfitting. And then the resurrection is certain because it is impossible. Right. So, I mean, you can you can see how he's he's drawing some sort of connection between uh, religious ideas and madness. And, and this is a guy who's, uh, you, you know, he's, well, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of what Aegeus says about resurrection because it's, it's more like he believes Berenice is dead when she's not right. It's not that he believes she's come back to life. He, he, uh, she was never dead, but he thinks she is. So I'm not, again, I'm, I'm, I'm always hesitant to ascribe any kind of like meaning making to Poe's writings. I, I, I suspect he just likes the atmosphere of all this stuff. Uh, but it, it certainly does make it confusing when you try to lay it all out in front of yourself. So Michael, I know you had wanted to talk about that, about the theology. I mean, do you, was there anything else on that that you wanted to say about if he's trying to make a religious point or do you feel like that's not something we can know? Well, when I took Anderson's class, that was my argument in my paper. Um, and looking back, I mean, Anderson said, and I, and I quote, Poe doesn't give a damn about theology. And at the time, I was like, oh, yes, he does. But no, I think uh, I think Anderson, as usual, was right about that. I, I think Poe is a 
is a remarkably untheological mind. And so the, the theology here is just kind of gothic set dressing. It's he's he's picked this because it's old and creepy and what he calls it inconsequential, which is a really odd thing to say if you care about theology in any way to call St. Augustine and Tertullian inconsequential. So I, I um I, I do think it's just a, a kind of atmospheric uh touch rather than well, any kind of meaningful theological point. But I'm I'm willing to hear an argument to the contrary. I'm not sure if I would uh make this an argument to the contrary necessarily, but the third figure that he mentions um was I, I didn't I wasn't able to get a whole lot of digging into um the uh, into the particulars, but the third figure mentioned was a figure of the Italian Reformation, um, who was denounced as a heretic. Um, and, uh, let's see. Um, yeah, the Celius Secundus Curio, um, yeah, it was an Italian, hum- uh, humanist, grammarian, editor and historian and yeah he was big in the italian reformation um but but yeah the, as far as i got was that he was so i'm what i one of the things i was interested in was how exactly this figure works with augustine and tertullian unless to your point it's simply that the names sound um you know, uh, sound creepy. Although as I'm, I, I had to start looking it up now. Um, so apparently, uh, Curio, um, was sent to a Benedictine Abbey to, uh, be purged of his heretical ideas through penitence, but this was unsuccessful because Curio instead violated uh, the reliquary of a couple of saints who were at this abbey and substituted a Bible for the bones. That's fascinating. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Accompanied by a message in Latin saying this is the Ark of the Covenant from which true gospels can be brought forth and in which are found the true relics of the saints. Huh. Wow. Just like an inside Protestant. Uh, anti-sola scriptura message there, isn't there? That this is a this is a guy born in a library, huh? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm like I, I got to think about what I what I think that means because there's a lot there to to kind of and like you said, especially with those two other with those two other texts, it's a it's so it's it's so hard to figure out how it goes because I mean you're right too Michael that the names you know maybe sound old timey or whatever you know and um but there's no need like if if we're thinking about aspects of the Gothic in the story there's no need to to put those in to to try to set a Gothic scene right we're already there like you know you you've got um I mean he did, this house is not described as particularly creepy but I mean it's it's a it's our paternal halls and he talks about it being the family in the family forever and he you know spends all his time in this closed in in this library um you know and you've got a a beautiful girl threatened by something in this case an illness you know 
burials. I mean, you've got enough of the Gothic going on here that there's not. I don't feel like there's any need to throw in random old books to make it seem creepier. And if you wanted to, to me, it would make more sense to throw in names of like early modern alchemists or something. You know what I mean? Like if you were trying to to set a, a particular kind of Gothic stage. But um, I'm gonna have to keep thinking about that because that is just right for speculation. Um. One thing I wanted to talk about, and this is kind of related, I guess, to kind of theological issues to some degree, um, or adjacent at least, is more than once, Aegeus says that that Berenice's illness has made her deteriorate, not just in her body, not just physically, but also morally. And he never explains what he means by that. Um, it happens two different times in the story, and I'm going to find one right now. Um, but, but while I'm looking for it, what did you guys make of that? What did you think that that uh, of that kind of that conflation of physical deterioration with a a moral deterioration? I read that not so much as like an ethical deterioration as that her identity itself is changing that that somehow this this illness she has caught has made her let's see um, disease a fatal disease fell like the simum simoam I don't know what that word is upon her frame and even while I gazed upon her the spirit of change swept over her pervading her mind her habits and her character and in a manner the most subtle and terrible disturbing even the identity of her person Alas, the destroyer came and went, and the victim, where was she? I knew her not, or knew her no longer as Berenice. So, I, I mean, it, it may it may be that it has changed her ethically, but it, it seems even deeper than that that the, the the what this what this wreaks on her is a is an entire change of identity that she she's been. Um, completely against her will and uh, obviously against the GSs too, been transformed into another person altogether. What about you, Sarah? Did you have any, did you kind of pick up on that or did you have any thoughts about that particular thing? Sorry, I'm still trying to look. I, I know it's here, but I'm trying to find the one place, the place where he says it the most. Yeah. Um, so, I was a little bit tripped up by that also um, because it seems there seems to be some interesting sort of interplay uh, that's at work when he talks about his own, like he talks about his at the beginning of the story about his family's own race of visionaries um, Right. Uh, and like his own family history and the fact that he seems to switch, um, like switch imagination and reality, which I, like I started to wonder eventually at some point in the story, whether like what the what the relationship is and is there in fact any meaningful distinction between the uh, the moral decay that he seems to note in Berenice as her condition gets worse and his own like the interplay between um, his own mental st 
state as a symptom of his own condition. I'm not sure if that relationship is making any sense, if that, that point is making any sense whatsoever. But it like at some point, I started wondering if some of that wasn't its own level of projection. But I also realized I could be way off base on that one also. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I, th- I think that kind of makes sense. And actually, I finally did find it. That makes that makes sense, too, if you think about where he mentions it. So he's he's describing um, his own kind of reaction to her illness. And he says, in the lucid intervals of my infirmity, her calamity indeed gave me pain. And taking deeply to heart that total wreck of her fair and gentle life, I did not fail to ponder frequently and bitterly upon the wonder-working means by which so strange a revolution had been so suddenly brought to pass. But these reflections partook not of the idiosyncrasy of my disease and were such as would have occurred under similar circumstances to the ordinary mass of mankind. True to its own character, my disorder reveled in the less important, less important, but more startling changes wrought in the physical frame of Berenice um, and in the sing. Let's see. Oh, no, wait. That was not it. And he says in the singular and most appalling distortion of her personal identity. That's what you were talking about, Michael. Um, Oh, man, I thought I. I thought I had it. It was right here. Oh, here it is. Actually, right before the part I just read, he says, although to a careless thinker, it might appear a matter beyond doubt that the fearful alteration produced by her unhappy malady and the moral condition of Berenice would afford me many objects for the exercise of that intense and morbid meditation whose nature I have been at some trouble explaining. Yet such was not by any means the case. So basically he's saying you would think that I might be more troubled by the fact that she has undergone what he says, a change in her moral condition. But really I was just fixating on the physical depredations on her body. So he's kind of acknowledging that it doesn't make sense to fixate on someone's teeth when they seem to have undergone some kind of moral change or total loss of personality and identity. Um, I wondered, it made me think a little bit of kind of really to really throw it back. It made me think a little bit of early modern beliefs about the kind of um, relationship between the inner self and the outer self. So the idea that a person, you know, from the early back in the kind of medieval and early modern period, that a person who is deformed, um, that they must have a kind of twist in their character, too. Right. That there's um, that a a kind of outer um, wasting or deformity um, can be an indication of something wrong on the inside. Um, And that even extended to things like um, beliefs about, um, you know, that if you have if a woman is pregnant and she looks upon something scary or frightening, her baby will come out deformed. They believed that they believed that that was the cause of deformities and and children who came out with uh, a birth defect or something like that. So it it almost made me think a little bit of that, which would kind of fit with this general atmosphere within this home of kind of strange antiquity, I guess, for lack of a better word. Um, I was talking to David about it, and he said that he would love to see an adaptation of this made where um, you take the the kind of physical deterioration accompanied by moral degradation and just run all the way with that and make her into a vampire so that she's huh. looking weird and strange because she's she's descent she's become a vampire which is also affecting her moral behaviors as it does in you know like in dracula and stuff you know once people get bitten they start acting a certain way <laughs> um, right and so i thought that was really interesting and that would be a really fun way to take this story which and then you know and then maybe that's why you go in your crazy state and pull her teeth so she can't bite you I, it, it's, it's just kind of it's kind of an interesting idea um you, but, uh, you could definitely see how this might be like a veiled reference to 
aggressive female sexuality. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly because he's at pains to say, too, that he was only ever kind of mentally into any relationship between the two of them. And he keeps describing her as more physical, more connected to the physical world than he is. That's true, too. I didn't think which about is, that. Which is, a you know, back as far back at least as uh, Descartes, the man has been connected to the mind and the woman has been connected to the body. Yeah, that's definitely true. There's a chapter in my John Updike book about that very subject. But I don't mention Berenice. Um, well, let's. I want to go to another another kind of question. I think Michael, this was one of your questions, so I'm going to read it and then we can talk it out. So the story relies on a contrast between suffering, which is always present, and joy, which is always absent. And that that contrast is set up right at the beginning of the story. So is that um, is that just kind of a literary technique, or is there something deeper there? Do you guys think? Why don't we read that opening paragraph out loud so everybody can see what we're talking about. Misery, he says, is manifold. The wretchedness of earth is multiform. Overreaching the wide horizon is the rainbow. Its hues are as various as the hues of that arch. As distinct, too, yet as intimately blended. Overreaching the wide horizon is the rainbow. How is it that from beauty I have derived a type of unloveliness? From the covenant of peace, a simile of sorrow. But as in ethics, evil is a consequence of the good, so in fact, out of joy is sorrow born. Either the memory of past bliss is the anguish of today, or the agonies which are have their origin in the ecstasies which might have been. So that's the that's the distinction I have in mind. And and it he he has an immediate um restatement of that when he says that his mother died just when he was born. So the joy that he would have had with his mother never existed because he exists. So there's this idea that um, that joy is always absent, either because it passes away or because it never will happen at all. Um, and misery is ever present. You get that bizarre description of the, the rainbow of misery. Yeah, I, I, I mean... I think that that it's hard to it's hard to know exactly what he's doing there, because I do think that that idea is a great way to begin um, to, to create an atmosphere of, for lack of a better word, I'm going to say oppression, like oppressive. It feels oppressive and heavy um, if you're trying to make someone, you know, get into a creepy headspace or to feel the kind of pervasive gloom and that claustrophobic closed in guy who never leaves the library kind of feeling i think one way to do that would be to produce in the reader a sense of you know what nothing matters <laughs> like joy is you know does is, does joy even exist everything's misery that that kind of is it's another way of setting the stage and producing a particular feeling in the reader um but it's it's also you know something we're thinking about and you know, as as Christians, I've, you know, we're 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 not going to be down for talking about there being no joy in in the ultimate or spiritual sense, um, because because of the work of Christ. On the other hand, you know, I think any person um, picking up the story to read it would have some things they could think of when someone says, "Hey, life's just misery, right? Like, where's the joy?" I think we all have you know reasons we might concur with that statement. So I don't, I, I'm talking in circles. I don't actually have a conclusion, but I do think that it's a, it's a really great question to come up with. Sarah, what did, you, what about you? Well, when I read that part, I, 
I want, particularly once I got a little bit further into the story and as we've been talking, in as much as Berenice is described as, um, let's see, agile, graceful, and overflowing with energy, hers the ramble on the hillside, um, let's see, uh, she roaming carelessly through life with no thought of the shadows in her past, or in her path or the silent flight of the raven-winged hours. Um, that description seems that like it could be uh, correlated to something akin to joy. And so one of the things I started wondering is, is that why that encounter happens at the end of the story? So evil is a consequence of good. So in fact, out of joy is sorrow born, either the memory of past bliss or the agonies which are of their origin in the ecstasies which might have been. So in that case is Berenice then this sort of embodiment of that joy out of which sorrow necessarily is also born? And is that why... Is that why... Aegeus does what he does to her? That was the question that I had as I was trying to work my way through that. I don't know. Like like he's trying to in some way like physically kind of take it? Take take yeah. some, of her, some of her essence? Yeah, or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. But, that I mean that's yeah, that's really interesting. That if misery is manifold and the wretchedness of the earth is multiform, then it seems to sound like if if this is a world in which joy does not exist, then joy also needs to be destroyed or something, or like somewhere that step is taken in in some sort of flawed progression of thought. And, you know, um, Sarah, you said that there is actually a place where he uses that word to describe her and like. Um, near the beginning of the story, when, in, the, in the, the part right after he, he talks about who they are and that they're cousins, he says, um, uh, ah, vividly is her image before me now, as in the early days of her lightheartedness and joy. Gorgeous, ah, yeah. fantastic beauty. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, um, he he uses that word to, to kind of to describe her. Um, or, or it could also be a way of saying that if the, if, if the first paragraph, if that's how you know, if that's how he's really feeling or if that's that's the, the, the kind of thing that Poe's presenting, then maybe joy such as what Berenice appears to have is like an illusion. Like she, you know, she she has this species of joy, but of course, then a fatal disease comes, you know, to take it yeah. all away. Yeah, like that. I can. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. That that makes a lot of sense. Well, let's um, let's just do let's do one more. um question because we need to move on to passing on the last question i wanted to ask you guys is actually and maybe i don't know maybe we should have done this first um but i want to i want to do it even if we should have done it earlier so this story presents Aegeus as yet another um unreliable narrator which is a post signature um Aegeus seems to be speaking clearly about things that happen when he's not having one of his kind of episodes that he describes of memory loss but do you think that the fact that he has these memory lapses does is that what renders him unreliable? Merely that he has these these gaps in his memory, or are there other things that he says or does that make us think this guy's maybe not a reliable narrator? 
So one of the interesting things about Aegeus, as opposed to Poe's other unreliable narrators, is most of the time they go out of their way to tell you they're not crazy. Um, oh, yeah. Right, like the the famous opening of the Telltale Heart does that, but it's it's not just that one. It's over and over again. I am rational. I am rational. I'm going to tell you something that sounds crazy, but I'm rational. And you know, oftentimes it turns out, oh, they're not rational at all. Like they're crazy and don't realize they're crazy. He more or less realizes it. Um, he he is fairly open about it. He sometimes confuses it with mysticism or visionaryism, but he does not really present himself as a reliable narrator does that make sense am i am i way off no yeah it totally does absolutely one thing he says at the very beginning uh, at the end of that first paragraph he says something interesting to me narrator wise which is i have a tale to tell in its own essence rife with horror i would suppress it were it not a record more of feelings than of facts so it's just it's it's crazy to me that he would say that right at the beginning. Um, and I mean, at the beginning, maybe it makes sense, because for the first little while, it, he mostly is talking about his feelings about how he was brought up and how he felt about her getting sick and then how he felt about him experiencing these weird memory lapses and all that kind of stuff. But by the time you get to the end of the story, you realize that there are these really, really aggressively intense facts, if they're true, of, you know, she apparently dies then he then you know she she but then he thinks maybe she looks alive then she gets buried then he digs her up and takes her teeth and she somehow still seems alive these are pretty remarkable facts that you would then in the story where you tell these facts that you would say at the beginning of the story but really it's a story more about feelings than facts um it's just it's it's such an interesting thing to say and i mean it makes you wonder did any of this really happen you know because he had he he kind of like Michael said, he's open about the fact that his his I don't know I don't know that I don't want to see his memories his consciousness isn't reliable, right? He's having these memory lapses. He doesn't always know what happened. And but it also seems like this is also a very it seems like no one in the story is reliable because nobody else in this house apparently noticed that she wasn't actually dead. Like and you know, it's not um unheard of. Um I mean it you know, being buried alive was a not unreal fear especially before modern medicine when it was kind of difficult sometimes to tell. And they had various tests that they would do in the early modern period to see if someone was dead. Um, One of the best examples of that that most people have seen but not known what they were necessarily seeing, that it was an actual medical thing, was in Romeo and Juliet when she takes the potion to make herself appear dead. And he says, um, no warmth, no breath. Like he's listing out the ways that she's going to appear dead because that's all the ways that they would check to see if somebody was dead. Um, Mm. So being buried alive was a real fear in the time before you could put a heart machine on or put a machine on somebody to detect their heartbeat. Um, well, and, and the times before you were embalmed. Yes. Because yeah, yeah. now you're not going to be buried alive, right? You're going to be embalmed. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, unless you don't want to be. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so it's just it's interesting to kind of and, and 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 this this story is interesting to me, too, now in a way that it wasn't when I was younger. Um, not necessarily because of um, the the unreliable part with the memory lapses, but when he talks about the fixation on like a physical object, that part where he's like, I would stare for hours at a shadow, that part makes me think a little tiny bit about my son who's on the autism spectrum. Um, that kind of fixation on a, a particular small detail of life, like a physical, you know, 
um, an object or something like that is something that sometimes we've seen with him, not so much now as when he was tinier, um, but it's an interesting detail to find in something like this because I think Poe is, is doing it to create this feeling of, of like creepiness. Um, but it's it's kind of some, because it's something I've seen in, you know, my own actual life. Um, I, I think that that's an interesting thing to bring into literature, because if you're going to then pair that with the kind of unreliable aspects of his memory, what you've got is a person whose memory is not reliable and a person who is inclined by nature to attach over much importance to some things. And, and and give short shrift to other things that other people might think are really important, if that makes sense. Um, and so that I thought that was kind of interesting because, you know, um, I think sometimes that, you know, that's something that we see in our kids, that, you know, that they will consider really, really important, something tiny and then something that's actually kind of a big deal. They don't even notice or whatever. So it's just it was kind of an interesting thing to, to see here and to go, oh, I OK, that's you know, I, I it hit me different. Than when I read this as a younger person. Um, okay, I think um, I, I'm I'm done with questions. Was there any any final thoughts that you guys wanted to say about this story before we move on to passing on? Well, I think that um, when you were talking about the part about you know the story being no more a record of feelings or more a record or if we're not a record more of feelings than a fact. So seemingly the story is a record of feelings rather than facts. Um, and then I think as an addendum to the point that you just made, Katie, towards the end of that first section of the story, um, Igeus says the realities of the world affected me as visions and as visions only, while the wild ideas of the land of dreams became in turn not the material of my everyday existence, but in very deed that existence utterly and solely in itself. So this, this, uh, Seeming, I don't want to call it inversion, but that's the only word that's coming to mind right now, um, of physical reality being seen as vision while the land of dreams becomes reality. That sort of, I don't know, like veil or, you know, seeming shift that happens there was something that, since it appears that the first part of the story leads me to wonder about the rest of what's accounted for. And then I've also wondered and I think I you know I mentioned this I think earlier in the episode but I'm not sure if I brought up this point in particular um, that there if the catalepsy the the severe rigidity um, and uh, lack of response like um, lack of response to uh, external stimulus um, and decreased sensitivity to pain, um, the, whether or not there was a, a sort of similarity intended between the catalepsy as a symptom of Berenice's, um, condition and, um, the reveries into which Aegeus himself falls, like that seeming non-reaction to external stimuli, could that figure into the places where his memory seems to blur. Um, and, uh, and then the only other thing I wanted to point out is that uh, um, I have no idea if this was considered common knowledge in the early 19th century, um, but in dreams, particularly since we're talking about visions and dreams and realities uh, in the language of dreams, 
dreaming of your teeth falling out or being pulled out uh, is supposed to indicate a loss. It's supposed to be associated with loss and or death um, and profound life changes, like the ending of relationships. So I don't know if there's any of that that we're supposed to bring to bear on the whole teeth bit. That would certainly end the relationship between Aegeus and Berenice. <laughs> At least one hopes. That's uh, that is really interesting. I that and I'm glad you mentioned that. I had I had meant to say something about that, but I had forgotten because one of the reasons, like my husband, absolutely hates this story, but he's got a thing about teeth. In part, when he was a kid, because he had some dreams where his teeth got pulled out, like you know, um, and so it's it's I think it's something that that scares a lot of people, and it's one of those things that kind of creeps up on you. Like I don't know that most people, if you said, hey, do you think teeth are scary, would say yes, but then you start talking about people's teeth getting pulled out, and it gets real uncomfortable. You know, I think that's one of the reasons the story is so successfully creepy, is because it's um, it's got this kind of atmosphere that's creeping up the whole time, but it's mostly mental like you were saying, and then right at the end, it's just full body horror, you know, um, and I think that's one reason people hated it so much at the time. <laughs> um, well, let's move up to our last section because we've, we're, we've just pushed just past an hour. Um, so we, um, listeners, you know, we always do this. We always like to recommend something at the end um, of our episodes, and we're going to do it this again, like we always do, even though it's a crossover, because we will want to get a, a chance to hear from um, all of our contributors. So what are you guys um, recommending tonight? Michael, why don't you go first? So as we were prepping this episode, one of the uh, podcast feeds I have for old time radio, an episode from the 1970 series CBS Radio Mystery Theater popped up, and it is based on, very loosely based on, um, Berenice. Uh, they do not bother calling the narrator Aegeus. His name is Ernest instead. And the story has as much to do with Lygia and the fall of the House of Usher and frankly Hitchcock's Rebecca as it does with the with Berenice, the, the Poe story. But, uh, you know, uh, CBS Radio Mystery Theater is one of the great 1970s radio drama shows. So if our listeners are like me, inclined to like that stuff, maybe give their version of Berenice a chance. Thanks. Um, and listeners, as always, we're going to link to all these things in the show notes, so you can you can check that out. Sarah, what about you? What are you recommending tonight? Tonight I am recommending, for those of you all who are fascinated by unreliable narrators and the link between... Um, the link between uh, lapses in memory and uh, full-body horror and crime. Uh, the novel Alias Grace by Margaret Atwood. I will go ahead and include a content warning. Um, there are several adult themes, um, as often are in Atwood's work, um, uh, questions of abuse and assault and crime. Um, and there's also some language. But for those of y'all who are um, compelled to explore uh, stories with unreliable narrators, and in this case, um, a female protagonist and narrator who might or might not be unreliable, then check this one out. The miniseries based on that is also very good, starring Sarah Gaydon. It, it, and it's a fairly faithful adaptation of the novel. Thanks. Um, have to check that out for sure. I'm a big, I'm a big crime fan. Um, so I am recommending tonight, uh, I'm not going to go too far from where we started tonight because I'm recommending a different work by Poe. What I'm recommending is the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket, Poe's only novel, 
that was published. Um, it's in some ways a hot mess <laughs> in terms of um, it's a little bit all over oh, the place. Yeah. Um, I love it. Um, and it's the only Poe that we read. So I took Anderson's um, early American literature. And um, and the only Poe we read in that class was this novel. Um, and it's kind of it has his signature feeling, his signature tone and kind of atmosphere. But in many ways, it's really interesting because it connects so much to other types of writing in the 19th century. So this is a story that in, is about a guy who stows away in a whaling ship. So you have all of this whaling context. There's mutiny. There's cannibalism um, because of a shipwreck um, and all kinds of interesting things. And at least if people for people who've only read post short stories, it, it, it feels very different. Um, and I think probably the main reason he assigned us to read it in that class is because it's it has had a pretty clear influence on Melville. Um, so if you've ever read Moby Dick, which tons of people have because it's a huge deal, maybe take a look at the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket by Poe, um, because it uh, he was both very influenced by to the point of kind of copying verbatim some kind of travel narratives of the time. And then also he himself influenced Melville when Melville was writing his stuff. So um, it's a really interesting read, not super, super long um, and definitely, I would say, worth your time if you're interested in Poe. Um, and would like a little bit more of a taste of something that's not just a short story. Um, well, listeners, thank you so much for joining us for tonight's crossover episode. Um, we always enjoy doing this every year. It's so fun. And so um, be sure to check in again next year <laughs> to see what's going to happen. Um, thank you just in general for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. You know that we love to hear from you. Um, I personally at the moment am in charge of the email account. So if you email us, I will get it and I'll email you back. Um, if you have, so do send us an email. If you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, we keep a list of those and we do look at it and we do pull from it. Um, or if you just want it to drop us a line or get in touch, you can do that at Christian feminist podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle at CH radio network. And you can check out the show notes from this and all of our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at ChristianHumanist.org. Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Uh, Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Sarah Thomas and Michael Farmer, I'm Katie Grubbs. Tune back into CFP in two weeks when we're going to be discussing uh, the, the series, TV series The Expanse. Uh, until then, in Essentials Unity, in Non-Essentials Liberty, and in All Things Love. <laughs>